I'm Sasha Sagan, and this is Strange Customs. The creatures are only just beginning to grasp the nature of one of the central elements of their universe. It's so hard for them to process not just on the largest scales, but even the smallest increments in their own lives. They use the motions of their one moon and their planet around their star to measure it, navigate it, understand it. They weave their beloved myths and stories into the fabric of it. They struggle to reckon with the idea that it only moves in one direction for them. They don't have the knowledge, the technology to bend it to their whim. So they have no choice but to live their lives at a speed and sequence outside their control. So, December 25th, important day, influential person born. And of course, we're talking about Isaac Newton. But some controversy about, was it really December 25th? In 1642, uh, what we now think of as 1642, in Britain, it was the 25th of December, but it was the 4th of January in Italy. Today, my guest is science communicator, engineer, and science guy, Bill Nye. So are they different days or are they the same days? And so our argument on the raving skeptic side is Newton's mother thought it was Christmas Day, for crying out loud. Right. You know how losing track of a week, it could happen. Yeah. You could lose track of nine days very easily. So one way of looking at the winter holidays is to declare that we're going to celebrate Isaac Newton's birthday, Newtonmas, on the 25th of December. And it's it's fun. So seven days from the new year, we start uh, Christmas, Isaac's birthday, and we work our way. The whole thing is amazing, but that these guys at the Vatican came up with this system to adjust the calendar that is just amazing. And you've, you've got to respect it. It's just, it's huge. So long about the 16th century, everybody was noticing you know, my dad told me to plant the crops when the sun was on this side of the hill, but it's it's way past that now. The sun's way over here now. We should be planting, but the calendar says I should wait. And so to adjust the calendar, after this was well enough understood, Pope Gregory the Thirteenth was so powerful. How powerful was he? <laughs> so powerful, he declared the 5th of October, followed by the 15th of October, threw away 10 days. And so imagine if you were a landlord, this is great. (laughs) (laughs) If you were a tenant, no, I don't. And so they literally had wars about it. And that's how we ended up with this discrepancy where Isaac Newton's mom thought it was Christmas Day, but everybody on the, or many people on the continent thought it was the 4th of January. So how much... Of our calendars, how much of our calendars are like f- reflecting the real 
you know, rotation and revolution of the earth? And how much of it are these like cultural, social inventions that are so, I mean, I was explaining to my daughter the other day why the last few months of the year have these numerical names that don't match up with what month they are and explaining about Augustus and Julian. And just like how much of when you think about the way we mark time, how much of it do you think is really a reflection of how time passes and how much of it is just a method for us to count it so that we, you know, that that works for us in each particular place? Well, it works for us with an extraordinary precision, just uh, just uh, setting aside the names of the months. Reckoning the number of days is amazing. It is, I'm amazed. So the Vatican astronomers came up with the following rule, which is just amazo mode. When was the last leap year? Um, I think 2020. Yes, 2020. And the one before that? 2016. Okay, was the year 2000 a leap year? It sounds, sounds like yes. Will the year 2100 be a leap year? I'm not sure. Is this the trick one? Good question. So these guys figured the following thing out, people. They agreed, they realized that by adding a leap year every four years, which had been going on, I guess, since the 12th century, which is a pretty good innovation, by adding a leap year every four years, they were adjusting for this the spin of the Earth not quite lining up with the orbit of the Earth around the sun. Mm. And we all say 365 days. Some of us might say 365 and a quarter days, but it's really three, much closer to 365.24 days rather than 0.25 days. It's a hundredth of a day off. And in modern mm. reckoning, it's about 11 minutes. By adding a leap year every four years, you're adding about 11 minutes too much time. Now, it's okay for a while, but after 1,600 years, yeah. Things were not lining up and everybody noticed it, this and that. So here's the rule they came up with in 1570 freaking two. All right. <laughs> if the century, in order to be a leap year, the century has to be evenly divisible by 400. Wow. So the year 1600 was a leap year. The year 1700 was not, 1800 was not, 1900 was not, 2100 will not be, 2000 was. And so this, wow. So the next adjustment is in something like 3080. <laughs> Set your clocks. thing that we all take for granted. You know, you go to the office supply store, or more importantly, in Ithaca, where you were born, you go to the Cornell campus store. Yes. And you buy yes. a calendar. And you don't, nobody questions, you buy a planner. Nobody questions where the boxes are and, this, and the numbers. It is so amazingly well worked out and how the days of the week are aligned. So there's some yeah. human nature thing. And this also really caught on in the Bible, uh, the number seven, uh, an odd number that has a middle, has a middle day, three on each side. And so we said, we're going to have seven days a week. And that's great. 
it does go into 52 weeks a year and it does come out pretty close to 365, not quite. Yeah. Then this March of the Days is all uh, figured out on all the office supply store calendars you're ever going to buy because these guys figured it out in the 1500s. It's freaking amazing. It is amazing. And especially because there's been so many different calendars with so many different lengths of weeks and, you know, systems throughout history. And um, it's, it's amazing that the whole planet, I mean, of course, there are other calendars that are still in use, but there is no matter what calendar you use, I think you also use this one. And it's kind of amazing that we got everyone on the same schedule. So is there anything, the way we keep time, time zones, the calendar, do you feel like the system that we use now is the best possible system? Or if you suddenly had total control over this purview, would you ch change something about the way we keep time? Yeah, others? well, the expression I hearken to, uh, another U.S. cultural reference if I were king of the forest, yeah. <laughs> like the cowardly lion, if I were king of the forest, I believe we would have 13 months instead of 12 of four weeks each of seven days. You know, let's not go changing everything. Uh, and then there is another idea to um, have a January zero, to have a, a New Year's mm. Day that would not... Uh, be reckoned with whole with uh, natural numbers, but I could see having thirteen months of seven weeks, uh, four weeks each of seven days each. That would I could see doing that. But these are big changes. But it's just interesting to note. And I guess you were explaining yeah. to your daughter that Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar yeah. were so powerful they got their own month. And they didn't want months in the fall or the winter, man. No, no. Beautiful summer months. Yeah, give it. What's Mediterranean Sea summer? Bring it on, man. It's amazing to feel like so strongly about wanting that of all things right. You can, you're emperor, you can have, you know, a million stadiums and whole castles named after you, anything you want. And to be like, no, this, it, I, I also, I want a month of the year and I want it to be nice out. <laughs> Fascinating. What a reveal about a person. I mean, were they done while... The, I mean, it wasn't a posthumous thing. It was like on their request. I got to read about this a little more. It was, it was on their request during their lifetimes. That's my understanding. They had a bunch of, um, of uh, what nowadays we might call priests or uh, government officials who also had re a religious or spiritual influence. And they were able yeah. to make these big changes. But I won't say we're stuck with that, but changing that is a big job. And there's a lot of other yeah. things we might do upstream of that. Yes. As long as, uh, speaking of King of the Forest desires, as long yeah. as we chip away at getting everybody to understand the value of science, the value yeah. of astronomy, and how we all rely on it for everything. This is yeah. how we're able to yes. have food. We're able to grow crops and feed eight going on nine and a half billion people is because of our understanding yeah. of astronomy and reckoning the calendar 
in an internationally common format that we can all embrace is really a worthy thing. And while we're here, can I just throw in the idea of the movable feast? Yeah. So, and I, I'm kooky for movable feasts. I'm, I love the movable feast. And what it means, this is once again, I'm pretty sure a Catholic church deal. The holiday doesn't fall on the same calendar date of yeah. the year. It moves around the calendar. Thanksgiving here in the States or Canada, different days, but our Canadian yeah. Thanksgiving, U.S. Thanksgiving are movable feasts, as is Easter and so on. But Isaac's birthday, Christmas, is not. It's always on the 25th of December as currently reckoned. Yes. Well, and I mean, for, you know, in for Jewish holidays and Muslim holidays that are on different calendars, on lunar calendars, also astronomical, you know, it falls, you know, these holidays fall different days of the year. Um, but that's because there's a lunar calendar versus a solar calendar. The moon's going around the Earth doesn't quite line up with the Earth's no. spin and orbit, rather orbit around the sun. So everybody, speaking of, we got two eclipses coming up, two eclipses oh. going right through Texas and uh, in October of this year. And then uh, I'm doing this from the April of 2024. Oh, It's going to be, you know, they're amazing. And uh, I mention it because uh, the reckoning of the position of the moon in the sky is also a non-subtle, amazing thing that we all take for granted. Yes. Well, all of this stuff, I mean, the connection between the calendar and astronomy, I mean, that is something that is for sure taken for granted. And I'm curious for you, when you think of an annual event, like when you think of a birthday or a holiday that is on, that is not a movable feast, something that is set, do you think of it in terms of, wow, we are in the same position in relation to the sun as we were last year when this happened. I mean, I know the whole, everything's moving, the whole solar system's moving, but in terms of where we are in relationship to the sun, do you think, wow, our planet is back in this place that it was? Or how do you think about annual events and how we mark time? So, Sasha, you and I have known each other for many years. It's true. Sasha, do you remember shooting film canister rockets in your kitchen? Yes, that actually does ring a bell. Yes. Oh, my God. That must have been a really long time ago. Yes. 1997. Anyway, yeah. have, I ever, have I ever wished you a happy birthday? I don't think so, Bill. I mean, I'm not upset about it. <laughs> In general, you can interview any one of my friends. My yes. Wife, also my brother, for example. All, I don't send, generally, I do not send happy birthday wishes. Instead, oh. I send happy orbit of the sun. Oh, my God. Of course you do, Bill. That's so perfect. Happy orbital anniversary is another science guy turn of phrase. Because you are in the same place in space as the day, in this case, that you were born, as the Earth Day on which you were born. And that is really a worthy and remarkable thing to ponder. Yes, the yeah. Earth is precessing. Yes, the wobble of the orbit, the whole, yes, there's some extra knock-on and very significant effects. But as a first cut, happy orbit of the sun on your birthday is pretty good. And when That's we, great. When we talk about uh, the first day of spring or the first day of winter and all this stuff, 
it's reckoned by astronomers looking at the position of the Earth or the position of distant constellations relative to the Earth's surface. Uh, and so that's why it moves a little bit, everybody, is the Earth's spin doesn't line up or is not an even number relative to the Earth's orbit. And this is, if we could, if I were king of the forest, Sasha, I would want everyone in the world on Earth and in orbit, everybody to know, uh, <laughs> to understand that the Earth's spin is not tidally locked to the orbit of the Earth around the sun. And, you know, the Earth's spin is slowing down because of the influence of the sun and moon on the ocean. The Earth's ocean mm. slowing the world down. And so it's been decided this time to not add a leap second. This time, I guess, would be kind of a pun. But this time around the sun, because <laughs> we're adding all these leap seconds, everybody's uh, goal positioning systems had to be reset. So my understanding is they, and you know, they are very busy. They are yes, the infamous they, yes. 10 years and add the appropriate number of leap seconds a decade hence. So stay tuned for that. We have an expression, time flies, tempest fugit. <laughs> We, I think all of it, certainly everyone I've ever met, loses track of time. Time slips by, yeah. I'm not aware of it. Uh, it, works, it works in the worst way. Sometimes <laughs> it seems to go very, very slowly, interminably, like, well, when is this going to be over with kind of thing? Uh, and then other times it goes by so fast, you just didn't have time to, time to appreciate it. And uh, you know Brandon Braga, right? Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. I so sure everybody, do. Brandon Braga produced Cosmos, the modern version of Cosmos that your parents started. That my parents started together and that my mom writes and produces now. Yes, thank you. And then for you, if you're really watching, Sasha has a cameo in one of them. Yes. So uh, anyway, Brandon Braga has pointed out that all time travel stories are really or inherently or fundamentally about death. That passage of time, this fourth dimension that we cannot control, just uh, drives us all to, to madness. And so we all must appreciate all of our time here on earth while we're here because as far as we can tell it's only going one way and there ain't no nothing to do about stopping it and so with this in mind here's another thing for you sasha this is one of my favorite and most troubling things oh good oh that's my that's my favorite kind of thing well I hope it gives us all pause for thought and helps us appreciate every moment. The moment, there's another expression yeah. to describe time. So, if you live to be 82 and 7 weeks, you get 30,000 days. And the, the exact number of days after 82 years, it depends on leap years, when you were born relative to the four mm. years of leap years. When you're a kid, 30,000 days sounds like, wow, that's plenty. Gee whiz, you know. Yeah. 
30,000 pogs, 30,000 poker chip, 30,000 Tootsie Rolls. So my thought experiment is you go to a typical football stadium and it might have 70,000 seats. In this thought experiment, you're gonna watch your life on the field. Your life's down there on the field, you're watching it, watching your life happen. Then in each day, you sit in a different seat. Each day, you're watching your life from a different point of view. Day to day, it looks about the same. Distinguishing one day from the next is about the same. 30,000 days. You don't get halfway around. You don't get halfway around and you're done. That's awful. On the other hand, how cool it is that we can see it from here and we can take steps to yeah. live our lives as best we can between now and then. That's kind of cool. Yeah. No, I think it's beautiful. And, and I think thinking of it that way, I mean, it's also just so reflective of like, you know, time is so slow when you're a child. It's like when I was a kid, I couldn't believe when like adults would be like, oh, I can't remember. Am I turning 43 or 44 this year or whatever it is? You know, and I'd be like, how can you not know how old you are? And like as time goes on, like the years sort of blend together and the changes are not as dramatic. And it is true how how different 30,000 days or Tootsie Rolls um, seem from childhood uh, versus from from you know, a little further down the road, but you're right. It is beautiful to be aware of it and, and to run, run into the reality rather than away from it. And then in the king of the forest kind of point of view, if everybody can understand our place in the cosmos and how we've been able to reckon all these motions of the earth relative to stars, the sun, the moon, the origin of the tides, the, and maybe and understand the history that led us to all celebrate, in my case, Isaac Newton's birthday on the same day. <laughs> of the year. Uh, that is a, a worthy thing, you know, because as you have pointed out and your parents pointed out so uh, well, articulately, humans are capable of just horrible stuff. My goodness. Yeah. You know, the modern expression you're probably familiar with is, we suck. <laughs> but then on the, on the other hand, we were able to do all these to, remarkable things. You know, I've spent a lot of time, some of my best friends are dogs. And I've spoken with them about the passage of time and reckoning the calendar and solar noon and the influence of the British Navy. Uh, and they, um, <laughs> but I just don't think they've, looked at it all in the same way that humans have. What a remarkable time to be alive, everybody, with all the trouble we have here on Earth, all the difficulties, the wars that are going on, the conflict, the diseases, the water shortages, the food shortages. Uh, if, as it is said, if you couldn't pick where on Earth you would be born, but you could pick when. When is another time expression. You could pick what time you would be born. This would be the time. 
Strangely enough, this is the most exciting time in human history for more of us than ever. Like for a long time, time, there's a lot of bad places to be born on Earth if you are human, a lot of troubling places. But right now, it's better for more people than ever, strange as it may seem. Uh, and that's because of the progress of science and our embracing of the joy of discovery. Just think what the next century holds. Just think what your kids will see, Sasha. It's astonishing. How cool is that? Our next guest is historian of technology, David Rooney. I so enjoyed your book about time, about time. One of the things that really stayed with me um, is you write, clocks and faith go hand in hand. That really struck me, no pun intended. Can you tell me the way in which our beliefs and the way that we mark time passing go hand in hand? So I got really interested in the idea of how faith and timekeeping went hand in hand and always have, because I'm interested in why we think about time that the way that we do, but also why we make the artifacts, the, the clocks, if you like, um, through history. And a lot of it is to do with ideas of dividing up the day or the day and the night into periods with a lot of times for prayer. And therefore, in all of the major religions, Islam, Judaism, then Christianity, um, have all considered how do we divide the day into periods where you must observe prayer. And therefore, there must be some kind of technology which wakes you up if you're asleep or orders the daylight. And therefore, it's been an, an enormous catalyst for making what we might call clocks uh, and, and always has been. I got really interested in... I mean, in the kind of in the Christian context, this is fairly well known in the West. I got, however, I got really interested in medieval Islamic technologies and the idea of making these astonishingly elaborate water clocks in. I mean, I talked about one that was made in the year 1206 in Diyarbakra um, in today's Turkey and, and incredibly twice the height of a human, a machine that showed the sun and the moon passing through the heavens, showed the signs of the zodiac rotating at their proper pace. There was like an automaton cymbal player, a drummer, a trumpeter. And all of this is like a miniature version of the universe. And the idea that clockmakers could make simulacra of the universe itself everything rotating at the same speed as if you were to look up and out like a human made version of god's perfect universe i mean how awe-inspiring that must have been through history and many of these clocks have survived and still provoke that awe to this day so i got really interested in this kind of this urge to create technology because your faith demands it. Oh, that's so interesting. 
of all of the ways that we keep time now. So the way that, you know, 60 seconds to a minute, 60 minutes to an hour, 24 hours to a day, like how much of that is a product of human invention and how much of that is sort of um, the way it should be? Or how how would you organize the way we measure time throughout the day if you had if, if it were up to you to decide? This is really fascinating, isn't it? Because we've the idea of dividing the, the, the day into, as you say, 24 hours, 60 minutes, 60 seconds, It's it's been with us forever, it seems. And in this case, it has pretty much. And it feels like it must therefore be natural. There must be, it must be reflecting some natural cycles out there in the cosmos. And yet, when it comes to time measurement, the only really, the only natural cycles are one day, so one rotation of the sure. Earth, one year, one orbit of the Earth around the Sun, and there are lunar cycles too, but everything else, anything kind of below the level of the day is entirely human constructed. And the idea of 24 hours, or rather the idea of 12 hours between sunrise and sunset, mm and 12 hours between sunset and sunrise is Egyptian, ancient Egyptian. The idea of 60 minutes and 60 seconds is Babylonian. Those two ancient cultures who, for reasons of their astronomy and their mathematics, found those numbers useful and meaningful. And remarkably, for thousands of years since then, we've stuck with it, even though kind of all of the other measurement unit systems that we live with. There are multiple systems. They've been argued over and they still are argued over. And yet time is, with with one notable exception, pretty much, we've stuck with this system ever since. That notable exception, by the way, being decimal time. Yes, tell us about decimal time. Well, this, this is interesting as well. I mean, the... Has there ever been a time when alternatives to 24, 60, 60 have been, have been tried? And the answer is yes. Now, the, the big story about decimal time goes back to um, the French Revolution in the late 18th century. Actually, ideas had been forming for centuries before that. But this was the big flourishing of it, this big metric project, this decimalization, where the number 10 stood for more than just its kind of arithmetical efficiency. It stood mm. for the rationality and the order of this new revolutionary France. And as with all of the other units, time fell into line. So in calendars, the 10-day week and 10 months in the year, which was relatively straightforward, actually, because there's been calendrical reform through history. Right, but they right. so many a- calendars. I mean, right. even now, so many calendars. Right. Yeah. But but they also decided rather um, foolishly, it turned out, to try and apply it to timekeeping as well. So to divide the, the what we think of as a 24-hour period into 10 hours and then 100 minutes and 100 seconds. And actually, the, it was used for a few years and there were clocks and watches made that either kept decimal time or they kept both times side mm. by side on the same device. A but translator. They knew that it was never going to catch on even then. Some some guy did a did some analysis in like the early 1790s and he worked out there were 15 million watchers in France at the time. 15 million. So what are we going to do? We're going to modify all of them. I mean, it's a really challenging job to modify yeah. 
technically. So what are we going to do? Modify 15 million and those watches would then have no value outside of France. So that's your export trade gone. Oh. And you can't import from anywhere. And it lasted a few years and it fell flat until 100 years later and it was tried again. And people keep trying to bring it back because it feels like surely it's more rational. Surely it's more. Yeah. But it's but it's not. It's I mean, so interesting thinking of it as, um, you know, the, I mean, right, there are so many things we changed through our time. We've gone through many different calendars. We changed currencies, you know, languages, like these huge undertakings. Okay, we've got to like, you know, I mean, you know, cycle out huge systems for new ones. And we do it all the time. But there, is there something different about timekeeping where it's just impossible. We'll never get off the road we're on. It's we're too we're in too deep. What do you think? Well, I think I think it's just that. I think it's that the, there's never really been anything that's been a competition until the 18th century when decimal time was really strongly pushed. You know, th- therefore, and and if we think that that clocks are really some of the earliest machines that humans ever made. And so they were really heavily entrenched in, in all civilizations, really, whether that's sundials or water clocks or mechanical clocks, all civilizations, that by the 18th century, who's going to try and change this? Whereas mm. in, in length, there'd always been kind of alternatives, and therefore it was a case of picking one over another. There'd never been an alternative. All right, if you accept the 24 hours, 60 minutes, 60 seconds, and start to pick away at what that actually means. There have been so many different ways of that being manifest in our lives. Okay, so does that mean that the the time between sunrise and sunset is divided into 12 hours? And sunset to sunrise is divided into 12 hours? That's what you need for your faith. That's what you need for your religious observance, particularly if you've got prayer times at sunrise and sunset. Well, sunrise and sunset vary through the year. Yeah. So the idea that we have where all hours are an equal length, the so-called equal hours system was meaningless for faith-based time. So the system called unequal hours was used, which is you divide the daylight into 12 and the day, the nighttime into 12. But that was no good for astronomers. They needed equal hours. So the idea that there were two parallel time systems, both using what we called hours, but those hours were <gasps> fundamentally and and almost philosophically different. Yeah. And the same people were, you know, the, the, the priest and the astronomer was the same person. It's just a part of their mind was thinking about, you know, astronomy and part of it was thinking about faith. And they switched easily between the two. It's kind of an amazing metaphor for so many other elements of that, the stress between those two ways of looking at things. So how would you do it? What would be a better system if you got to tomorrow decide how would you, how would we keep time in this world? I, uh, that question, that question, that kind of that utopian time system yeah. has been asked through the centuries. I mean, I'm really interested in the 19th century and when that kind of idea of standardization really took hold and took off. And that idea of time zones, which emerged from a conference in Washington, D.C. in 1884, whose time is going to be the prime time for the world to march? Mm. Greenwich was chosen. Well, that tells you a lot about empires. Um, Yes. 
but 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 then when you look at the time zone map and you look at the edges of it's meant to be neat straight sides but it's right. not really interesting to me so what's the ideal world well at the time people were talking about a single time for the world could be they called it cosmic time actually because it was about let's go out into the cosmos and look down on earth as this singular planet let's mm. stop looking at borders right very very much kind of in that kind of 19th century idea of of sort of internationalism or globalism and they said well just just have one time but how political is that to try and force fit one system that works for everyone has been proven century after century never to work quarter of the population of earth today use daylight saving time right we change our clocks twice yeah. a year and advance them by an hour I mean, that's insane when you think about it. And some places, I mean, if you look at places like Australia, where they've already got fractional time zones, so they've got time zones that aren't an, an inter, integer number of hours from Greenwich, it's like a, a number and a half hour, and then that zone itself splits into north and south in summer or winter. So so the idea that this one-size-fits-all will all get... Will all the world will communicate better if we change our clocks to make better use of daylight was the idea of a British property developer 120 years ago. And he just, he just was this moral crusader who thought mm. we should wake up earlier in the summer. And, <laughs> and that's the only reason we change. Anyway, so the idea that we can fix everything with this perfect system, it... it it's great in theory, but it's never been proved possible in practice. When did people, like, when did the average person start, like, knowing what time it is all day long? Like, when, how, for most of history, you know, I'm sure people were aware, like, you know, it's high noon or the sun is setting. But when did people start being aware all day long? I love, love, love the stories in your book about the outrage about being so beholden to the clock tell me about the earliest incarnation of checking your watch all day so if we've got the idea maybe that this we're always watching the clock we can't have our lunch break until the clock allows us to we can't eat when we're hungry we've got to wait until the clock tells us it's one o'clock or whatever that feels like it's something from the industrial period when we all moved to towns and cities and we moved into factories and we started becoming wage slaves. And so the idea that, that the clock is ruling us feels fairly recent. But actually, the argument goes that most people or many people have always been really tied to whatever you might call the clock. It might be the sound of the bell, the, 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 the town bell or the village bell that might toll, not just at noon or at daybreak, but through the day. And if you're working in fields or, or farms, you were still tied to the clock. But this, this Roman, this Roman quotation, right? So ancient Rome got its first public sundial in the year 263 BCE. So like 2,200 years ago. And it was the first public sundial, and it was it was actually some war um, war loot that had been looted in a military campaign on the island of Sicily, and they'd mm. had this sundial in Sicily, and the military leaders of Rome cut it down, brought it back to the heart of Rome, the Roman Forum, put it up on a really tall column 
that looked over the people of Rome. It had the name of the, the military consul who'd won this battle. And it was a sundial, public sundial, right? And the people of Rome hated it. Because then, as now, it was there to show military might, but it was also there, just as our clocks are, to divide our day up, to, to kind of keep us in order through the mm. day. So here's this quotation. I love this. So this is the, uh, translated into English, but this quotation is 2,200 years old. It's a playwright. It's a character in a play. It says that the gods damn the man who first discovered the hours, who first set up a sundial here, he smashed the day into bits for poor me. It's cut and hack my day so wretchedly into small pieces. He said, when I was a boy, my stomach was the only sundial. It was by far the truest. But now what there is to eat isn't eaten unless the sun says so. In fact, this town is so stuffed with sundials that most people crawl along shriveled up with hunger. Now, that idea, right, that Rome, by a few years after the first one, was full of sundials, every mm. street corner, and you can't eat your lunch. I mean, this is a literal translation, 2,200 years. It's so good. Also, what stands out to me about it, I mean, it's so good. I would love to see a performance of that play, you know, to be a time traveler. But um, you, what, the idea that, and maybe this is just a nuance in the translation, and who knows, I don't know, in Latin what it would be, but the idea of uh, the gods damning the man who discovered the hours rather than invented the hours is somehow so telling that it's so powerful that it seems like it's this natural phenomenon, which is kind of how we see it now, rather than something we invented. Um, it is. I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, that's really interesting, and 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 it may be I don't read Latin either, and it may just be an artifact of the translation. Yeah. But yeah, that idea of kind of normalizing the concept of dividing the day into smaller chunks, which which isn't astronomical, it is human, it is cultural and social, and and whether it was a deliberate attempt to to normalize this idea, which by then was very very old, um, from sundials, you know, going way back in Egypt and. In Babylon, um, whether either that they'd forgotten that this had been constructed by humans, or that they knew, but but kind of the myth needed to be propagated mm. to the people of Rome. Yeah. This is this isn't this isn't us, your leaders, telling you what to do. This is nature. This is uh, your gods are telling you what to do. Right. As well oh. as us, or rather, the gods are giving us your leaders legitimacy to tell you what to do. And when. Uh, uh, Precisely now. So I got really interested from when, when I started thinking about that sundial on a column. It feels like a clock tower. And yeah. we're surrounded by clock towers today, most of them 19th century. But the idea of having a clock up high, mounted there by the, the rulers and overlooking the people keeping them in order. So, so we've got Big Ben in London, yeah. well known around the world. You know, it's it's kind of a symbol of the British people. It's put there by a ruler and it's looking down on the people of London and we obey it, right? Oh, my God. This is such a... Yeah, I mean, I've chills. Also, Big Ben. I mean, it sounds like a person. You know, it gives it so much more power than an object. It's so... It's like personified in this way. It's so interesting. I mean, I grew up in a small college town in upstate New York and on the college campus, there is a clock tower and it's one of the central images 
of the campus of the town in Ithaca of Cornell University. And it's now totally changed in my mind. What are the other things that we put up very high for lots of people to see, you know, flags, Mm -hmm. religious imagery, you know, in some cases, the face of the dictator, you know, whatever it is. And like, how interesting there must only be really a handful of things like that, that over the course of history, in many places, we put up high for everyone to see as a symbol of what we value. And I never would have thought to put clocks in that same category with those other very powerful images. I absolutely agree with you. And it takes its place alongside the flag and the the figure, but clocks have faces too. Yes. They are very humanoid in shape, as well as having often having names. They have faces and they speak. Many of them strike the hours or chime the quarter hours. They speak with a loud voice. David, I have chills. This is so <laughs> unnerving, but so brilliant. I was looking at the clock towers that the British built in India when they really started to clamp down on on discipline in India from the late 1850s onwards. And they started building clock towers in every town or city that was run by the British. And I looked at one in particular, it's in today's Rajasthan, the town of Ajmer, and it's still there. And you you can look at it and it's got a face as, as clock towers do, but it's also on top of it got a metal crown. And I looked at a picture of Queen Victoria. Now, Queen Victoria was crowned the Empress of India the year that that clock tower started to be Mm. built. And if you look at pictures of her crown and this clock's crown, they're the same crown. (gasps) So this idea of this clock tower in, in Ajmer being the Empress herself at a distance Ruling by proxy, she was there. She was standing over Rajasthan, over Ajmer. Her face, her voice, the Westminster chimes were sounding. A British-made clock, the clocks were usually from a company in South London. And there they are in every major town and city in India. And so so when I started thinking about clock towers in that way, like you, I get chills when I look at them. Because they've got faces behind their their faces, right? What do you think people take for granted about how time impacts us that we can look at anew somehow? One particular idea that we've internalized since the 16th or 17th century is the idea that time can be wasted. And that idea, so when people talk about time as money, they'll often talk about the 18th century, Benjamin Franklin, who came up with that phrase, remember that time is money. And he was speaking in a kind of a capitalist context of talking about trade and therefore therefore the equation of, of time and profit. But actually what he was doing was building on something two centuries old, which was driven by the English Puritans 
in the 16th and 17th centuries, the idea that time was God's time and therefore you mustn't waste a moment of it because, and here one 17th century Puritan pastor said that if you are, if you waste time, you are guilty of robbing God himself. It is him you owe your labours to and idleness is unfaithfulness to the God of heaven. So the idea that wow. oh, it's not your time to waste, you must, it's God's time, then translated into this kind of capitalist context. In other words, there's somebody higher than you that you owe your time to. Might be the factory manager, the mill owner, your boss, right? So I think we've internalized this idea that we can't waste time. Look how many time, time management apps people have on their phones. You've, what are you doing this weekend? Well, I've got it mapped out in 20 minute mm. segments. And if you don't have that, you're, you're a waster, right? You want to just sit and read a book? Well, that's, you're a loser. <laughs> and so, so this idea is, is mad for one thing. So there's a strand which ran through some of the stories that I was telling in the book that I wrote about this, which is a strand of resistance. We don't have to succumb. We don't have to roll over. Uh, we don't have to accept that clocks do have control over our lives, or rather the people who put those clocks there do. There has been so many um, episodes in history where people have actively resisted the control that clocks have, and often their resistance has taken the form of attacking the clock itself. And that might be a very kind of low-level way, which is being kind of willfully late, um, but but in some cases, it's been very violent as well. And I, I mean, there's, there's a few stories. One is very close to home, literally for me. I used to work at the Royal Observatory in Greenwich. It's now a part of a national museum. It's kind of a few minutes walk from where I'm talking to you from in Greenwich. I used to work there. And in the year 1894, when it was an astronomical observatory, there was a bomb exploded there by a French anarchist who saw time, the centralization of time, the standardization of time mm. in places like astronomical observatories, as being everything that anarchists were against. The idea of we should all be marching to this singular um, institution, these elite people, astronomers, scientists, governments. And so this guy turned up, Marshall Bodan was his name. He's in his 20s, young guy, quiet, been living in London for a few months and he turned up at Greenwich with a bomb. Now it turned out that he bungled the attack. He tripped, it went off and it blew, it blew him to pieces. Nobody, he was killed. Um, nobody else was harmed. Like the face of one brick of the observatory was mm. chipped off. But he was going round to the front of the observatory to throw that bomb at the clock, at the gateposts, which all tourists to Greenwich still see. This clock that's been there since the 1850s showing Greenwich Mean Time, this, pr this prime time for the world. So for him, that was a symbol to resist. Um, suffragettes resisted in Edinburgh. Um, Indian people in, for instance, the city of Bombay, now Mumbai, resisted British um, attempts to install standard Madras time on their time. So they shot out the dials of the main clock in the town centre with rifles. Um, people in factories and mills and plantations have resisted as well. And so that, for me, is what really interests me, that that we could all step out 
see these time systems mm. for what they are as human systems, as sy systems of of power and the power constructs, right? And yeah. then decide how we feel about those constructs and perhaps we might choose to play a slightly different role in them. It's so interesting. And I mean, here in the, in the United States, I think that like protestant idea of productivity as like a moral value that i think it's something that is now a little bit people are starting to unravel these ideas because they're so deeply entrenched in our national identity that productivity is a that's your it's a it's a moral ethical value that you are doing something that is is true and righteous um versus it being something that we value as a culture is, is I think now just starting to sort of be unpacked a little bit but so okay so lastly so you have spent all this time um, thinking about these deep questions about how the clock rules over us I'm curious about for you in your own life how do you like you know how do you, how does this impact your daily activities, your schedules? How does it? How do you think about it when you just have to meet someone at, for lunch? I am genuinely completely under the thumb of of the clock. Absolutely. I am I'm pathologically early because I can't bear the thought of being late. So I've totally internalised that idea. Um. I am I'm very busy and my day is chopped up into smaller and smaller pieces just like that Roman. <sighs> my flat here in Greenwich is filled with clocks. I had to switch many of them off or move several of them into the other room so that the ticking wouldn't affect the recording of this podcast. <laughs> I've got personal skin in this game. When I was eight years old, my parents decided to have a complete career change and became this set up a clock making, clock restoration business. And so I was eight years old and the family home became a clock business. And, you know, for, for 10 years until I went to, away to university, I was like a small part in this, this family business. And it wasn't just like the language of the clocks and how they work, but it was the fact that my parents always researched the story of every clock that they worked on. Some of these mm. clocks really modest, right? You know, like cheap. Today they're worth financially they're worth five bucks, but every clock had a priceless story to the owner, and that seeped into me the idea that clocks are so significant and and what clocks mean as well as how clocks work has has stuck with me forever. So I don't think I will <laughs> ever. I don't think I'll ever be freed from the tyranny of the clock. But, but also, I mean, don't get me wrong, I think clocks are amazing. So, I mean, I've talked, in, it, it, sometimes it can feel like it's quite negative that clocks are these ordering, controlling. I think clocks are amazing. I mean, I think what they've enabled in the modern world is utterly astonishing and brilliant. But like everything else that's been made, like every other technology made by humans, the more, I think the more we understand why they were made and for what purposes and by whom, I think it just helps us make better decisions about how we how we choose to live with them in our lives.
I was obsessed with time travel from childhood. My dad and I would watch the Back to the Future movies together. We loved to discuss the logical and philosophical problems that arose from the idea of time travel. But even just experiencing time linearly, moving forward one second at a time, is difficult. I think that's the root of why we have so many rituals, holidays, and rites of passage. They are very useful for processing the passage of time. A day, a month, a season, a year, a life. Without ways of measuring and marking time, the hours and days bleed into each other. Years go by and suddenly we might find ourselves very surprised to discover we're old. As I enter my 40s, I find that I experience time so differently than I did as a child watching Back to the Future with my dad. There is so much waiting in childhood. Now it feels like weeks go by in the blink of an eye. The calendar and the clock, imperfect though they are, help me feel the rhythm of my life. They help remind me that the earth is still rotating on its axis the same way it was still revolving around our sun at the same pace, whether we experience it that way or not. Something to think about next time you look at the calendar and think, wow, it's nearly summer, and genuinely wonder how that happened. Thank you so much to my guests today. Bill Nye is the host and creator of the Emmy Award-winning television series, Bill Nye the Science Guy. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society, which was co-founded by my dad. And Bill's most recent book is Bill Nye's Great Big World of Science. And thank you so much to David Rooney, who is an author and curator in the UK. His most recent book is About Time, A History of Civilization in 12 Clocks. Our theme music is by Evgeny Klemenko. Additional music in this episode by Spear Fisher and Blue Dot Sessions. My producer is Dale McGowan. Strange Customs is a production of Only Sky Media. Visit us online at onlysky.media slash strangecustoms. Tune in next time for more Strange Customs.